Jesus' ministry leading up to what is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to spend our time all the way through Christmas to take a look at these three chapters in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 on what many have called the greatest sermon uh, that's ever been recorded. Uh, as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, I think one of the things we need to understand is that uh, it was not the um, total sermon that we have written here. You can sit and read this sermon in about 15 minutes, and now if it was the only sermon, then every one of you would say, Danny, if Jesus can do it in 15 minutes, I think you could too, okay? Uh, but uh, when they walked away, they said they, it was like words they'd never heard before. So uh, when you have what we have on the Sermon on the Mount, it's what God's Holy Spirit uh, led Matthew to record from that sermon and put it together. And it is one of the most powerful pieces of literature that we can have. And we talk about the kingdom, which you talk about the reign and the rule of God in our lives. And um, as you move into the, uh, uh, into the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see the character of the kingdom. And then that character translates into conduct of kingdom citizens. If we're a part of the kingdom, what is our character and what is our conduct? And as you get to the close of the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about choices that we make as kingdom citizens. And so today, we want to look at the first 12 verses uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of it, it talks about how that, uh, you know, Jesus had a lot of crowds that were following him, and he went up on a mountain. And it says he went up on a mountain, and his disciples came after him. Now, that's not like the 12 disciples. That word is a word that means people that are eager to learn, people wanting to learn more. So it's a group of followers that have been following him. Uh, I like the way the message says it. It says his committed climbers. So Jesus went up on the mountain and his committed climbers came after him. And it says that what he did was he sat down and it said he went up on the mountain and then he sat down and began teaching them. Now during that day, uh, when a rabbi was teaching, often he would sit down and uh, probably as people are uh, following him, there are times when Jesus is walking and talking and teaching, but then whenever the time is for him to sit down, that's when you and the crowd go, whoa, this is going to be some good stuff. Okay, we, we, we got we to gotta listen to this. And so when he sat down, then all these others began to come and they're listening to what he has to say. And he starts out and he talks about the word blessed. And he says, blessed are, and then he walks through eight different uh, characteristics on there. And when he says blessed, uh, you know, we get the, um, that word at times we keep thinking maybe happy or whatever, but it, it's a lot stronger than that. The word blessed is a word that means favored by God or the approval of God. So as we look at these beatitudes, and these will be very familiar words for many of you, every time you look at this, I want you to think about God's approval. God approves the one who is, and then just go in from there. Blessed is, God approves, or God's favor is on this one. And so if you've got your Bibles or you've got your holy mobile in your hand, um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to start in uh, the uh, second verse. And it says, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when you take a look at these eight characteristics, these these eight qualities, these are for all believers, all kingdom citizens. You do not read these verses and say, well, this is just for the spiritual elite. This is for the spiritual aristocracy. It doesn't apply to me sitting there in the pew. This applies to every one of us. And so as we read this, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom is at hand. And if you want to be a part of the citizen, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to live like a citizen of the kingdom, this is your life. This is your character. And then as we continue the messages on through the weeks, you will see the conduct that will be translated out of that character. And it says, this is the kingdom citizen. This is for all of us here, Shades Mountain Baptist Church. This is for all of us that are believers in Christ. For the kingdom, you are citizens. This is how we are to live, okay? And it's a radical lifestyle. And if we could really get and accept this and apply it to our life, it would radically change us. It would radically change our church. It would radically change our community. It would radically change our nation. The Beatitudes. God's approval. Look what he has to say on the first one. Let's look at each one. We've got eight of them. Let's take a look. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, The beatitude he talks about here is poor in spirit. That word poor is a word that means powerless and dependent on others. It is an acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. So whenever he says the word poor, the people sitting out there understood you're powerless if you're poor because they didn't really have a voice. And, and they were totally dependent on others. And from a spiritual standpoint, it is spiritual bankruptcy, total spiritual poverty where you cannot even provide the barest of necessities of your spiritual life. So it says God approves the one who's poor in spirit, the one who recognizes that there is unworthiness in me. I recognize my sinfulness and I cast myself on the mercies of God. This is the first one, and it is foundational. You can't go any further if you don't get poor in spirit. No one can come to Christ. No one can come to God unless they have a poverty of spirit. And then God begins to pour out his grace on the spiritually bankrupt because those are the only ones that are open to believe and receive what he has to say. You see, unless we come to the point where we realize that I am spiritually bankrupt, I, I really won't listen so much to what God's word has to say. To me, it's give it take it or leave it. But when I'm spiritually bankrupt and I say, God, there is no worthiness in me. I'm an unworthy sinner that's separated from you. I am wide open to hear whatever it is you've you've got to tell me. And it says that the one that is spiritually bankrupt and he comes before God, understands his sinfulness, and then says, God, you know, I I come to you and I'm coming and I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness of my sins and I want to receive you into my life. I had a seminary professor, Dr. McGorman, made this statement. He says, no one struts into the presence of God. No one struts into the presence of God. Man, that's good. 
We can't sit there and talk about all the great things we've done in life and come and say, God, I know you're glad to see me. What we do is we come into his presence and say, I'm a sinner. I've been separated from you. There is a poverty of spirit that I have. So he says, blessed or approved by God are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's your reward. With every beatitude, there is a reward. Blessed is this, and this is your reward. Here's the reward, the reign and rule of God in your life. You get poor in spirit, you come to God, fill me with your spirit, you've got the reign and rule of God in your life. God is the ultimate authority. He is the final say in your life. And it's those times of profound spiritual poverty when we come face-to-face with God and I come with the fact of my need. I need you, Lord. Jesus started out and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how we got to start. For theirs is the kingdom of God. The second one, he says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the word mourn is a very intense word. It's a word that would be used for mourning the death of a close friend. You are mourning. It's an intense sense of loss and there's helplessness. And it is used for mourning over your sins. It is being sorrowful for your sins. We see ourselves for what we are and then our emotions are stirred in this morning. We begin to see sin the way that God sees it. And so when you get to the poor spirit, it's like a confession. Lord, I know that I've, I've sinned. When you get to mourning, it's contrition. And that is, I am so sorrowful for my sins. I begin to see them and I'm seeing them like God sees them. And I see where God hates those sins. And so when I mourn for my sins, it means that I don't cover them up. I don't excuse them. I don't defend them. I don't justify them. But I'm sorrowful for them. And I look for ways to deal with it. And once we mourn over our sins and our own sins, then we begin to mourn for the sins of the world. Yeah, I just think when you see people who just their heart is breaking over what's happening around the world and for the lostness of people, I think that when you see someone like that, my first thought is these are people who mourn over their own sins. And they have understood how bad sin is, its negative effects, what it does in their relationship to God, and they got it. And now all of a sudden they're mourning for others too because they understand the penalty of sin. And he says, blessed are proved by God for those that mourn over their sins. And he says, the reward is they will be comforted. That word comforted is a word that means to come alongside of. And God personally comes alongside of you. And how does he comfort you? He comforts you through forgiveness of your sins. He comforts through forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is laying the foundation here. You've got to come a poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. You come before God, you mourn over your sins. And when you mourn over your sins, then God is the only one that can forgive your sins and erase those from you. He's the one that can take away that sorrow. You know, sometimes mourning for our sins is not bad. We need to understand at times there are people that will that will talk to me and they say, man, you know, I've, I've made decision for Christ and I've got some areas that I'm working on. And then they'll come back and they'll say, you know, I failed again on that. And, and they're all upset and they're beating themselves up. And yes, you want to do better in those areas and you want God's strength. But if you ever get to the point to where you don't mourn over that sin, then that's bad because then you have just gotten callous to it. And he says, we need to mourn over our sins and be sorrowful for those sins. And in God can give you a comfort because he can forgive you of those sins. So the third beatitude is he then comes and he says, blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness does not equal weakness, okay? need to understand that. Meekness does not under, is not the same as, as, uh, as weakness. So if you come up to somebody and say, hey, you old meek, weak person, he may hit you. I just want to let you know, all right? Meek is not weak. What meek is, it is a gentle spirit. It is humble, but it is power under control. It is what is called a bridled strength. It's like a bit in the mouth of a, ho- in the mouth of a horse, that you've got all the strength there, but then you can control it. And a meek person is a person who's got all kind of power, but he's got power under control. There's a gentle spirit. And the Greek ethical system, they take this word meekness and, and they loved it. Because in their, in their ethical system, they said meekness is right in between the two polar opposites over here. For instance, anger. One who was angry, you could be excessively angry over here, or the guy over here has an inability to get anger. What meekness is, is the perfect mean in between those two. And this is how they say it. It's one who's angry on the right occasion with the right people and at the right moment for the right length of time. He just sits right there in the mean. A meek person. It is power under control. Jesus was the perfect example of this. And you walk through and you look at Jesus' life and you come to his arrest. And in Matthew 26, when you get to his arrest, all of a sudden when the soldiers come, some of his disciples take out their homemade swords or whatever they've got. And they begin to brandish his sword. And Jesus told them, he says, hey guys, put your swords down. Do you not know that I could call to my father right now and he would send 12,000 angels down here? I don't need your swords back here. Now see, that's power under control. I could, at this moment, when they're getting ready to arrest me, I could, with one word, have 12,000 angels and take them out. But I'm not going to do that. He's meek, power, under control, humility. And in Jesus, you say, well, man, I would love to learn from Jesus. Well, let me tell you good news. Jesus would love to teach you. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn of me. Why? For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus says, you want to learn to be meek? He says, you follow me. You be yoked to me. During that day when they would yoke oxen, they would put two of them together. And they would usually take an older experienced ox and put them with the younger inexperienced ox. So that the older one could teach the younger one kind of how things went. He could teach them the pace that they were supposed to move. He was also going to teach that ox about how to um, <clears throat> uh, accept the master's directions. And so after a while, when they're yoked together, all of a sudden, they're doing together. And what it says is that we're to be that same way with Jesus, to be yoked to him and to learn from him. That's why we read God's word. That's why we come to church. That's why we're a part of Sunday school. That's why we're in Bible study groups, where we're learning more about him. While we have fellowship with others to learn. We want to learn about Christ. And he says, if you get yoked with me, I'll teach you how to be meek. I'll teach you how to have that power under control. Now, already, what you're seeing is there's a change happening. There's a progression in these beatitudes. Foundation, poor in spirit. Man, I I just, I'm bankrupt spiritually. And then God says, I'll give you the reign and rule in your life. I'll come in and I'll change your life. All of a sudden, I get to where I mourn for my sins because I'm sorrowful for the things I've done wrong. God says, I'm going to comfort you with forgiveness. 
It says, now all of a sudden, blessed are the meek. He says, since my spirit has come into you, I'm beginning to change who you are. And I'm going to give a humility to you. I'm going to give you a spirit that's a quieter spirit. I'm going to allow you to have all the power, but to have it under control. And so what's your reward? The reward is you will inherit the earth. You'll inherit the earth. Now, it's kind of odd because most people would say, I think the brash and the uh, overbearing will inherit the earth. Nah, they don't get jack. Um, the one that gets the earth is the meat, the meek. And it says, behold, the meek will inherit the earth. So, so what does that mean? That means that they will be satisfied, they will be content, and they will be enjoying what God has for them in this world. And so when he says, I inherit the earth, there's a contentment there. It is that I'm away from the tyranny of needing just one more thing. It's a quiet spirit. You still can be an ambitious person, but then you understand this is just temporal. And whatever I've got here, I will be satisfied with it. Even though I may be deprived on some things, my goal is to live and to reign with Christ, to be content and enjoy and even possess whatever parts of the earth God allows me to have. Because in the end, when I die, I'm also going to uh, possess things in eternity, which is even greater. The the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, we live as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We don't have anything, but we possess everything. That is this new spirit that's being birthed in you. Blessed are the meek, power under control. The person that can handle themselves, there's a contentment. There's a contentment with this world. The fourth beatitude. The fourth beatitude is blessed is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we're going on the offensive. Poor in spirit, mourning, we're meek. Now all of a sudden we're hunger and thirsting for righteousness. That word hunger and thirst means a strong desire. It is, it is like a person who is starving to death and a person that's dying of dehydration. They are hungering and thirsting. When Jesus is sitting there on the Sermon on the Mount talking to people there in Palestine and he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, they understand because a number of them know that they are this close, this close to starving to death or dying of dehydration just because of where they live and and the conditions. And he says, you hunger and thirst, even as you hunger and thirst for food, you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, righteousness is an inner righteousness. It is a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. I hunger and thirst to be doing what it is that God's called me to do. I want to conform to his will. You hunger and thirst. You desire that. You desire that more than anything else. And now this, whenever you think about this one, it drives it down and makes you ask some difficult questions. Because you see, it rules out half-hearted religion. It rules out that compartmentalized faith to where we can do something on Sunday here in church and then live the rest of our life differently Monday through Saturday. You can't do that. If you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you say, man, I want all there is that I can get from you. Well, guess what happens? You get a reward. And that is that you will be satisfied and fulfilled. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's not going to leave you hanging. He's going to say, I'll fill you. I'll satisfy you. And you become fulfilled. You become satisfied. 
But you see, the interesting thing about hungering and thirst for righteousness, let's say you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then all of a sudden God satisfies that need. Guess what? You're going to get hungry and thirst for more righteousness in just a little bit because that's just the way it works. I have seen and experienced this incredible, wonderful righteousness of God. I want to have some more. I want to hunger and thirst for it more. And so I'm satisfied, but what it does is it begins to encourage me to even want it even more. I can't, let's say it's, um, it, it's, it's nighttime, and it's about like 7 o'clock at night. You've already eaten dinner, and your wife has made a fresh batch of brownies. I mean some goodens too. And, uh, and they're in the pan, and you can smell them. And uh, your mind clicked back to that morning where you had cereal and there was milk in the refrigerator. And it had an expiration date that was still good. So it made it even better. And you said, wouldn't it be great to get a brownie and some milk? So you do that. You go over to the pan, you cut you out a brownie, you get it, you get your milk. You're hungering for this, each desire in this big time. So what you do is you eat that brownie, you drink the milk slowly just to oh, take it all in. And guess what? You're satisfied. He said, it met that need. 30 minutes later. <laughs> for me, my thought goes back to the brownie pan and the corner one. You know, you know what I'm talking about, Brad, don't you? Yeah, that corner one, what's oh, the best. So now all of a sudden... I'm not just wanting a brownie. I'm wanting the corner brownie. And I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get the corner brownie. And I'm going to get that along with some milk. Now, back at 7 o'clock, I was satisfied. But because it was so good, I felt like I needed a little bit more. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and, and we pursue these things of God, what God does is he satisfies us and he fulfills us. And then, all of a sudden... We have a desire to even a greater quest to confirm, to conform ourselves to his will and to say, we want to be conforming to the will of God. All right? Satisfied and fulfilled. Now, there is a progression in these beatitudes. The first four deal with our relationship to God. The last four deal with our relationship to man. So already, already we can see we've been poor in spirit. We've been spiritually bankrupt. We've been mourning for our sins. There's been a change in us because we've got this meekness, this power under control. And we began to hunger and thirst for righteousness to conform to God's will. And once that happens, all of a sudden, some new things are getting ready to happen. And that is the next one. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. The merciful. A person that is merciful is one that feels sorry over someone's bad situation and does something about it. You feel sorry about their situation. You do something about it. It is compassion with action. Compassion with action. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress. It is not just compassion, it's compassion with action. Jesus tells us a story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story of a man that was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was a real dangerous route. And some robbers came, they beat him up, and they left him on the side of the road. And so all of a sudden there, there comes like a priest and a Levite, uh, two official people that worked in the church at that time. And when they saw him, they went to the other side of the road and just kept walking. 
And I'm going to guess that when they got to their destination, they probably told people what they saw. Hey, there was a guy that was beat up on the side of the road. And I tell you what, I've been telling you for years, we need to get better security on those roads. And we need to uh, probably uh, in, in, improve our, our police force out there. We need to set some more watches in that area and, and take care of our travelers. One of them may even have put him on the prayer list and said, you know, I saw a man that was beat up over there. I think we need to pray for him. I thought we need to put him on the prayer list. So they probably added him to the prayer list. Now, they may have had some kind of compassion. Don't think there was much. But there was no mercy because there was no action taken. Well, then all of a sudden, here comes a Samaritan, which during that day was what was called a half-breed, who they hated Jews, and Jews hated them. And a Samaritan came across this hated Jewish person, saw him, his situation, stopped, and when he saw him, it said he felt compassion. So he felt compassion, but that one where it stopped. He then sat, nailed down with him. He dressed his wounds. After he dressed his wounds, he then put him uh, like on his horse, donkey, whichever, and, and carried him into town. As he got him into town, he found the, the Holiday Inn Express over there, the inn there, and he checked him in, and he stayed with him all night to make sure that he survived the evening. Then at the end of that night, he got up that next morning, went to the front desk, and he said, hey, here's my credit card. Put all of his charges on my bill. That was mercy. It was taking action. And he says, blessed are the merciful. God approves those that are merciful. And what is the reward? You shall receive mercy. Say, damn, what, what, hold it. If I'm merciful, I receive mercy. What does that mean? Okay, you do not extend mercy in order to receive mercy from God. We can't earn mercy from God. God has already given us mercy. Through Christ dying on the cross, he provides us grace. He provides us salvation. And it's because of the mercy of God that we are even saved. We've already received his mercy. But what it means is that when you extend mercy to someone else, you then become a channel of mercy. You become a channel of mercy. That means that when you're merciful, your heart is in such a condition that you can receive more mercy in order to share with others. It's like a cycle. You extend mercy, and guess what? It's like more mercy comes into your heart. And then you look for others to share that mercy. You become a channel of mercy. You say, you know, I just don't see myself as being a real merciful individual. Take this test. Go find situations throughout life. You don't have to look for them. They're going to come right in front of you. And when you see it, you say, okay, now what would Jesus do? What should I do? God approves that is merciful. I'm going to take an act of mercy. If you do that, then according to what God's word says is all of a sudden your heart's going to be changed a little bit and you're going to like receive some more mercy intake. And when that happens, then all of a sudden you're going to find yourself becoming a channel of mercy. And God approves that. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word pure means unmixed. It's like clean water with no impurities. It's metal with no dross. It means your heart doesn't have mixed motives or divided loyalties. It has a laser-focused devotion to God. A laser-focused devotion to God. I mean, that's where you are. That is an undivided heart, which is the center of your personality. 
and you're just focused with a single devotion to God. It is laser focused, cuts through everything else, pure in heart. It means you're not play acting, you're not pretending, you're not practicing some kind of surface religion. You are single-minded, laser-focused commitment to God, resulting in moral purity, honesty, and integrity. The pure in heart. Now, this one demands a thorough self-examination of all of our motives. You know, do you come to church to meet God or to fulfill your civic obligations? Do you serve the Lord out of a love for God or so that others will notice? Are you more concerned about not offending the world than living for God and standing for God? The one with a pure heart does God's will whatever it costs. Whatever it costs, he'll do God's will. Here's the reward. The reward is that you shall see God. What that means is you get a clear vision of God. The reward is is that the person who has a pure heart will have a clear vision of God both now and also into eternity. When you have this pure purity of heart, you begin to see God in the pages of the Bible. You begin to open up his word and you begin to see him in there. You see God's hands in nature. You see God in all the events of life. And all of a sudden, your vision has just been changed. And you see others, you say, how did they see God in that? I would say it's because they're operating with a pure heart. And when you get a, that laser focus on God, undivided, unmixed loyalty, just focusing on him, all of a sudden, the Bible comes alive. Events of life began to make sense a little bit more because you see God in each one of those things. Your eyes are open. You see the vision of God wherever that he may appear. That is our reward. You see, you got to remember, you can only see what you're able to see. If the ordinary person goes out on a night full of stars, he sees only a host of pinpoints of light in the sky. He sees what he's fit to see. But the astronomer looks at the same sky, and he'll call the stars and the planets by their names. A navigator looks at that same sky, and he can find the means to bring the ship across the seas to the desired location. And when your heart is pure, your eyes are open to see the vision of God wherever he might appear. The seventh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, I want you to look real close at what Jesus said. He said, peacemaker. He didn't say a peace lover, but a peacemaker. It's not the same as appeasement, which means you settle for a superficial peace rather you deal with the deeper underlying causes. It's not evading the issues just so we'll have peace. And we've all done that. Let's just don't talk about it. Let's just keep peace in the family, keep peace in the business, keep peace in the neighborhood, okay? It's also not peace at any price when you compromise justice and truth just to get peace. Peacemaking means making waves to secure peace. Now, for many of you, you said that just seems completely opposite of what I ever thought about peacemaking. I always thought peacemaking was a real pacifist type of thing where it was like, okay, guys, we're going to be okay. Come over here. Let's just get a big group hug. This is good. A peacemaker is one that makes waves to secure the peace. The peacemaker engages in the fight to make sure that real peace is secured. You face the issues, you deal with them, and you conquer them. It's not a passive acceptance of things. It's an active Facing of things. 
So you actively face it. So peacemaker's not a bad person. They're just saying, we got some problems here. This is the surface. We got to dig deeper. Now, I know you may not want to dig deeper. We got to dig deeper. All right, now, once we dig deeper and we find out what the underlying issue is, if we get that resolved, we got true peace. If we stay up on surface issues, yeah, we're good for a couple days. But then the underlying issues are going to circle, surface back up, and we're going to be in the same bad situation that we're in right now. So the peacemaker is the one that goes a little bit deeper on that. Now, when that happens, you can think that being a peacemaker will be costly. And it is. It was costly for God. When God reconciled us to himself, it was costly. In Colossians 1, 19 through 20, he says that God made peace with us at an immense cost, the lifeblood of his son, Jesus Christ. So for us to be peacemakers, it's probably going to require a cost also. But what's the reward? Here's the reward. You shall be called the sons of God. You shall be called the sons of God. What that means is you can reflect God's character. You will reflect God's character. Now, in the Bible, when it talks about a son, it is, it is stronger towards the character than the position. Uh, if, if you were a son of your family, that's a position, okay? You're your father's son. But more important is the character to where they say, oh, you, you reflect the character of your father, It's more of a character thing. And so he says that when you are a peacemaker, you reflect the character of your heavenly father. Because, you see, he was a peacemaker because he needed to reconcile the problem we had between man and God. And and it wasn't his problem. It was our problem. It was a sin problem. And yet he reconciled that to bring peace between us and God. And he sent his son, and he was willing to pay the cost so that we could have, have peace. And he says whenever we become peacemakers, then guess what? We, we began to reflect our Heavenly Father. And then hopefully others can see the family resemblance in us and know that we are sons and daughters of God. And then the very last is found in verses 10 through 11. When he says, blessed, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When it says, blessed are those that are persecuted, when we think of persecuted, we first think about people who give their lives. And that is the history of the church, and that's a history of what's going on right now all around the world as people are being martyred for their faith. But actually that word persecute has a, has a part of it which means to harass, to where he could say, blessed are those that harass you because of your faith. And he builds on that in verse 11 because he says, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The sense here is that people throw insults in your face. And see, it could be verbal harassment. It could be audible. It could be whispered. It could be innuendo. It could be direct. But just being harassed for you being a Christian. And we see this more and more. And it's just going to escalate in our own culture, in our own society. You know, years ago when I was growing up in the church, I could look at that and say, hey, we're not going to get harassed much as a Christian, especially as a Southern Baptist. Everybody loves us, you know? And, and in today's world, making a stand for, for Christ, uh, you're going to be harassed. 
And he said, hey, blessed are those that are harassed. And he says, let me tell you why. Because, you know, when Jesus came, he exposed the evil of the world and men hated him for it and they killed Jesus. When we live righteous lives and attach ourselves to Christ, we become lights that expose the darkness of the world and the world will react and the world will strike back. It'll happen. It happened to the prophets. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to us. If you are living out the first seven Beatitudes, it is certain you will experience the eighth. If you're not experiencing the eighth, it may be because you're not living out the, the first seven. Second Timothy 3.12 says this. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what's the reward? Ah, look what he says in verse 12. An immeasurably great reward in heaven. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. You have a great reward in heaven. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary troubles. And so as we go from this place and we try to live these Beatitudes out, and persecution comes our way. It says to rejoice. And you say, hey, the prophets were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. These are light and momentary afflictions compared to eternal glory and the rewards that we have for us there. So Max Lucado wrote a, uh, a, a book about the Beatitudes and it called The Applause of Heaven. And uh, you go back to God's favor. And so if you ask yourself, would you want God to smile? Would you want to receive the approval of God? Would you want to get a standing O from God and those in heaven? It says these eight beatitudes right here, these eight beatitudes are the ones that God will favor. So you just think about them. If I took my life and said, okay, Lord, I want to truly be spiritually bankrupt and understand spiritually bankrupt come before you spiritually bankrupt, come before you mourning for my sins and sorrowful for my sins, then what happens is there's a power under control that God will give me. He says, you'll be meek. You'll have a power under control. There will be a life that you will live when you hunger and thirst for righteousness that will make you to conform to God's will. And when that happens and I begin to be merciful, I have compassion with action. And then from there, I had this laser focus of devotion to God as I attempt to have a pure heart. And then I want to be a peacemaker. I want to make, if I will make waves. I'll be willing to take the stand in order to secure peace. And then, Lord, even to be harassed for my faith, I will rejoice with that. He said, now, if you do these things, then look at the incredible rewards you're going to get. You're going to have the reign and rule of God in your life. You're going to have a comfort through the forgiveness of your sins. You're going to have a contentment in your life. You're going to be satisfied. You'll be fulfilled. You will be a channel of mercy to others. You'll have a clear vision of God and where he works in nature, where he works in life, where he opens up the pages of Scripture. You will reflect God's character, and you will have an immeasurable reward in heaven. That's pretty good. Now I was in sales for eight and a half years. And I could take that product, and I think I could sell it. Because every time when we would talk to our customers and we say, these are the costs, their whole question is, what are my benefits? I couldn't wait to, back then, that little, little, little thing where you turn over the flip chart and say, here are your benefits. And when you look at the Beatitudes, you say, all these things, look at the rewards. God says, listen, you gain my favor. 
And these are the wards that you have. Blessed. Approved by God. But the question we've got to ask is every time we look at that passage of Scripture, do you and do I want the approval of God more than anything else? Because if I don't, then I really won't strive to do these eight. But if I do, then I'll make that my life calling to say, God, I want to live for you. I want you to always think about that, the approval of God. There can come rough times in your life. There can times when you have been just far away from God. Things aren't working well in your life. And you may even utter and say, I'd just like to do something that would give me the favor of God. I just, if those words ever come out of your mouth, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, go back to it and say, okay, God, you've given me a blueprint here. This is conduct for a, a kingdom citizen to live in your kingdom. Okay? Now, I can't think of a better way for, as we initiate this study on the Sermon on the Mount than to observe the Lord's Supper today. As we observe the Lord's Supper, it is a time to remember what Christ has done for you. It is a time to remember how God became the peacemaker when he sent his son to give his life for us so that we could become the sons of, and daughters of God. We could become his children. We could be adopted into his family. In just a moment, we are going to have, have our men to uh, distribute these elements. And let me just share with you, as we take the Lord's Supper, it is something that is for believers, that uh, people who've made that decision for Christ, been born again, accepted them into their heart. It's what we call a salvation experience. And you don't have to be a member of our church. If you're a part of God's family, you've made that decision for Christ, we want you to participate in this. There's some of you here that would be open and honest and say, you know, I'm really not a Christian. I've, I've come. I'm just kind of checking things out over here. Well, we're thrilled that you're here and hope that the message spoke to your heart. But when we pass that plate, if you would just go on and pass it to the person next to you, you don't need to take any of the elements and, uh, and just be thinking about what all it means. Listen to the music as it is sung and uh, let God speak to your heart. So I'm going to ask at this time that our, our ushers would come and, uh, and begin to get the elements, to get in your position, to be ready to distribute those. Uh, let me tell you, just to remind you, that when the elements come to you, there is a cup. And in the cup, there's a wafer and then there's some juice. And so just take uh, the cup out and just hold on to it. And you hold on to it until everyone has been served. And after everyone's been served, then I will step back up and we will begin to uh, walk through uh, the taking of the elements of the Lord's Supper. So as these men get in their position, uh, I'm going to take the, the privilege of leading us uh, in a word of prayer and, uh, and get our hearts prepared uh, for this time together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for uh, the day that we have that we can come and we can worship you. And uh, we want to pray that as uh, we do the um, partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper, that we would examine our own lives and examine where we stand in our relationship with you. Help us think through these eight Beatitudes, the favor of God, the approval of God. How are we doing on those? And uh, Lord, call us to a stronger, deeper commitment to you through this time. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.